I'm so proud of this guy, and I'm so thankful that he's my friend and he's in my life. I love you. All right. Well, we are going to pray to start this all off. So, <clears throat> Jesus, we just thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you, God, that you are good, and we thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless. And so, Lord, right now, God, I ask that you would just bless this time, Lord, that you would bless the words that are coming out of my mouth, that you would bless the ears that are hearing this morning, God, that they would hear what you have them to hear, not what I have to say. Lord, we just thank you, and we pray your blessings over this. Amen. <clears throat> so, the last few weeks to month, two months, <clears throat> I, started, I started praying a prayer like, Lord, let me feel your heart for people. And it has caused me to be much more emotional whenever I hear stories or things. And so I've been going through this, this, uh, <clears throat> this sermon, and I've gone through it multiple times, and I was doing great with it, like no issues. And then at pre-service prayer, Max decided to share some really heartfelt stories that kind of got me tearing up. And then during worship, it just happened again. So if I start kind of like mumbling and crying, please excuse it. And thank you, Max, for causing all of this to start. <clears throat> I am going to keep it brief this morning. I actually don't know if I'm going to, but Jordan says that every Sunday, and so I feel like we have to, <laughs> I feel like we have to start out that way. So this might be a 10-minute sermon. It might be an hour-long sermon. If at any time I'm going too long, just say you have a word and come up and <clears throat> take the mic from me. Um, so as most of you know, we've been going through a series on resurrection life, and Jordan asked me if I would talk on what resurrection life meant to me. So whenever I think about resurrection life, I think about the resurrection. Like, I feel like we have to go there. We have to start at the cross. We have to start with Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. <clears throat> there are a lot of different theories that are way above my pedigree on what the cross means and what the resurrection means. You get some people who say the cross is the only thing that matters. The resurrection was just kind of icing on the cake. You get people who say the resurrection is what gives credence to the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. No, that is way above my level, and I'm not taking a stance on that this morning. So what I'm going to talk about is more of like a symbolic, this is what the cross and this is what the resurrection mean. So the cross provided forgiveness for our sins. After living a perfect life, like an entire 33 years of not sinning, of not doing anything that would cause separation between Jesus and his Father God, Jesus was rewarded with being beaten, with having the flesh literally ripped from his skin, being spit on, being ridiculed, having a crown of thorns put on his head and pushed down so that the thorns would actually like poke into his head. And then he was hung on a cross. Like that's a, a great reward for, for living a perfect life. But he did all this. He hung on the cross, and his blood that was shed on the cross is what gives us forgiveness from our sins. <clears throat> So the cross made us right with God. Like this is where Jesus atoned for our sins, past, present, and future. It covers every sin we have ever committed and we will ever commit if we choose to believe in him. <clears throat> so the cross made us right with God where we have access to a God that we previously did not. And this was, this was displayed, like there was a physical display of this. Um, in the temple, there's a place called the Holy of Holies, and this is where God's presence dwelt. Like his Shekinah glory, a physical manifestation of his presence was in there. And this presence was so strong that only certain people could go in there, and you had to do certain rituals to cleanse yourself before you could enter into the Holy of Holies, because God was there. 
And so I've heard that whenever the priests would go into the Holy of Holies, they would actually tie a rope around their foot because if they went in there and they didn't perform the cleansing rituals right and they still had sin in their life, they could literally drop dead in a second. And so they had that rope in there so they could just pull them out. Nobody would have to go in there. Nobody else would have to die. You know, you end up having a chain of dead people all like trying to pull somebody out. That wouldn't be too good. So this was a place where God's presence dwelt. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was split from top to bottom, a physical representation that God was no longer hiding behind a curtain, that he was no longer in a place where only one or two people could come and be before him, but he was coming out to the world that we would get to have relationship with him. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead showed the world that what he said was true. Jesus said multiple times through scripture that he would rise again after three days, that he would rebuild his temple, and he was talking about his body. When Jesus rode from the dead, it proved that there was victory beyond the grave, victory beyond death for us. Now, when we use that word death, a lot of times we think about like a final act, like at the end of your life you die. But that's not necessarily what this was, was just talking about. It wasn't talking about the final act of death. It was talking about the process of death. So all through our life, we're getting older. And there's, there's things physically that lead us towards death, whether it's sickness that is farther away from the way that God created us to be, like that's closer to death. Physically, there's, there's mental illnesses that are farther away from how God created us to be and wants us to be. That's leading us towards death. Spiritually, sin in itself is not death, but that act is leading us towards a spiritual death of being farther from God. So death, whenever we're talking about it, it's not talking about that Jesus just conquered our literal death. It's talking about that he conquered the process of death. He conquered sickness. He conquered mental illnesses. He conquered any type of sin that you could struggle with. So it's not just just that physical act. It's actually the entire process of sin and of death that take us away from Jesus. His victory over death is over the process and is about us getting to live in his victory on a daily basis, not just once in our life, but every single day. Jesus rose and displayed himself to others to show the power of death could be defeated. So... Jesus died so that we would have right relationship with God. And I'm going to kind of, I've got kind of three three different little processes here. The first one is the resurrection. The second one is about God. And the third one is about us. And I'll try to tie them all together as good as I can and let you know where my mind was kind of going with these things. But Jesus died so that we could have right relationship with God. So it's kind of important that we know who God is, that we know what God is. Because if we don't believe that God is a good God, if we don't believe that he's a loving father, if we don't believe these things about him, if, if they're not true, then what Jesus did was pointless. Like we, we have to want to have relationship with God. Does that make sense? So Jesus died so that we could have right relationship with God, but if we don't believe that God is these good things, we're not going to want to have right relationship with him. So it's important that we have a healthy perspective of who God is and of what God is. So my statement is that God is good. Is anybody who disagrees with that statement? Good, because I don't really have a a rebuttal if you did, probably. Um, So we're going to move forward with the the fact that God is good, and we're going to talk about this a little bit. I've got a few scriptures that we're going to look at. Um, I'm just gonna gonna read through these and then we'll come back and hit some. First one, Exodus 34:6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. 
First Chronicles 16.34, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Psalm 86.5, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Nahum 1.7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Mark 10.18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. James 1.17, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. <clears throat> the thing about God is that these attributes that describe him, like whenever we're talking about goodness, it's not just talking about the things that he does, it's talking about who he is. <clears throat> so for those of you that don't know, I've been working with Carlos for the last few months. It's been a lot of fun. I get to go to a shop every day where I get to use all sorts of power tools that I have yet to convince Danny that I need. We're still working on them. <clears throat> Going to get that miter saw soon. So <clears throat> I get to go into the shop, get to, get to have fun and build things. One of the main things that Carlos does right now is he does the window displays for all of the Louis Vuittons in Texas. So if you go to North Park or the Galleria and you see the Louis Vuitton with the beautiful window displays, all the, the fancy things in there, the walls behind them, the floors on the bottom, that's what Carlos and his team does. <clears throat> so Carlos does such a good job that the North Park Louis Vuitton asked him to design something special for the watch party, which doesn't happen very often. I mean, most of their designs come from Italy where they are based in Milan, I believe it is. Um, <clears throat> they come straight from there and kind of tell Carlos, this is exactly what, you, what we want. But Carlos got to create a design, submit it to them, and the people in Italy actually approved it and said, sure, go ahead with that. So this was a really big deal because this is the first time he's gotten to do this. So we designed this huge thing. We designed this beautiful wall. One of the things that, that we had was this wall that had a hole cut out in it for a TV to fit behind. And this TV was going to be put on a frame. Now this frame, very simple. You got a bottom board, you got a board standing vertical, and then you have two pieces of wood that connect it. So you got a little, little triangle. We put the TV on there, it's behind this wall with the hole and it looks like the TV's floating. <clears throat> Super cool idea Carlos came up with. He, he had done it once before and so he had me build this little, this little wall. I mean, I helped with some other things, but he asked me to do this. So I built this little TV stand. Again, four pieces of wood, not very complicated. <clears throat> I wasn't able to go with them to the setup, and so I knew that they were setting up. After I knew they had been there for a little while and gotten things set up, I texted Carlos and said, hey, send me pictures. Like, I really want to see this. This was the first big project that I had been working on. And so he sent me a picture. And the wall that we did, I mean, it, it was beautiful. Like, this is a 20-foot wall by, I think it was 12 feet tall. It was, um, like, kind of see-through different designs. It was really cool. And then he sent me a picture of my little triangle that I had made. <clears throat> And I wish I had a picture for y'all that I could show. It was on, he just showed me the top part, and there was a shelf right above it. On the left side, there was about a one-inch gap, like there was supposed to be. On the right-hand side, there was probably a two-and-a-half-inch gap, like there was not supposed to be. And so my first reaction was, what the heck? Why is that shelf crooked? And Carlos was nice enough to tell me, the shelf is not crooked. You decided to not cut a straight line, which is something that, like, my... 20-month-year-old daughter could probably cut a straight line. Like, it's not that hard. You put it on a table saw, you push it through. It cuts a straight line. I literally have no clue how I did not cut a straight line. I like to think that on most days, I am a pretty good carpenter. Like, I'm not the best. I'm not good as some people. But I like to think I'm a pretty good carpenter and capable of cutting a straight line. This is, this is the difference between, <clears throat> between us and between God. Like, there's going to be days that I can't cut a straight line. As, as a human... 
as a human, I have a nature of good and of evil. Like, I, I, I like to think that I'm like on a pendulum. I'm not all good, but I'm definitely not all evil. I like to think that I'm, I'm more towards the good side of this pendulum. I have my, my days that are, that are better than others. <clears throat> but I get to make a choice with each thing that I do, with each action, with each word that I say. With my wife, it's, is this thing that I'm about to say to her, is this going to bless her? Is this thing that I'm about to do, is this going to bless her? Is this going to hurt her? I have a choice each day in every single moment, in every single action to say, is this thing that I'm going to do good or is this thing that I'm going to do bad? So when I say I do something, it's based on whether I have chosen to be good or bad in that particular instance. But that does not apply to God. God does not decide whether to do a good thing or a bad thing because God cannot decide I'm going to do a good thing or a bad thing. Like when we say God is good, we're not talking about character. We're actually saying like God is goodness. Goodness is who God is. It's not, it's not an option that he can choose to be good or bad because he is good. That is who, what his nature is. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God is not able to be anything other than what he is. He doesn't have the option of sitting back and saying, Am I going to do something good or am I going to do something bad? Because he is compelled to act according to his nature, and his nature is goodness. <clears throat> going back to James 1.17 that I read a little earlier, it says, Every good Thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. So every good thing and every perfect gift is flowing from God because He is the source of all things that are good. So anything that is good is from God. Anything that is not good is not from God because God is good and He can only do good. So goodness does not come from us. Goodness does not come from the universe. Goodness does not come from a tree. Goodness comes from God and God alone. And so if something is good, something is from God. Now, of course, the hardest part about talking about God's goodness is addressing the elephant in the room, how bad things happen on a daily basis. We see a war, like there's a war happening in, in Israel right now with Israel and the Palestinians. We see people getting sick and dying every day. There, there are kids who are being trafficked. Like there, we all have things in our life that we wish would just get taken care of, that we wish would just go away. I can't, I can't stand here and tell you like why these things happen. I mean, we all have a hard time, sometimes have a hard time believing, like why would a good God allow these things to happen? And I don't think we necessarily have an answer for all those things. I can't tell you why sometimes things are allowed, why sometimes things are permissible to happen. In other times, we can pray something and we instantly see a result. We instantly see God moving in a miraculous way that didn't necessarily happen. But I can tell you that in the midst of those things that God is still good. <clears throat> I want to share a little story about how God revealed this to me. Um, every, <clears throat> every spring break in college, we would go on a spring break mission trip. Um, our college group was pretty radical, um, even for our church. Uh, these trips were amazing times to see God move, to encounter Holy Spirit. And I remember during one of these trips, I had a, a friend that discipled, I think he was two years younger than me. Um, and on the trip, I got a call saying that 
Kiefer had been on a kayak with some friends in Lake Ray Hubbard, and the kayak flipped. None of them had their life jackets on, and the other two people made it to shore, but they hadn't found Kiefer yet. And so I remember sitting there, like, outside the room. We had these rooms where everybody was, and I remember sitting outside of that room and just praying over and over and over, God, let him be safe. God, please help. Like, God, do something in this situation. I remember praying, like, Lord, just let them find him walking on the shore. I remember praying that over and over and over. And eventually, whenever you start praying these things, you get to a point to where you have nothing else to pray. Like, you have no more words. You've already asked God for every single thing you can think of. And so you come to the end of your rope, and you have nothing else to say, nothing else to ask for, unless you're just going to keep saying the same thing for hours and hours and hours. And so at that point, I remember sitting there, and something just clicked in me, and it said, God, you are good. And I remember sitting there and just saying that over and over and over because I had nothing else to say. And something clicked in me that day that showed me that God is good in the midst of all these circumstances. That it doesn't matter. Like I, can't, I still can't tell you how God was good in that situation. I have no proof. I have no, I have no way to validate the fact that God was good. But I know that God put something in my heart that says, God, you are good. And even when I can't see it, you are good. We have such a limited perspective on what's going on in the world and the things that are happening around us. And oftentimes we take what we can see and we put that on God. But our current circumstances don't determine God's goodness. Our, our thoughts about God don't determine his goodness. God is who he is. He's not going to change whether you want him to or not. Whether you think he should do something or not, God is still good. So God is good. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's never going to change. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that we believe that God is good? So I would say as Christians, we have one thing that should be the foundation for everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think. It's the fact that we are sons and daughters of God, that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, that we are righteous and redeemed people who can live with the resurrection power of Christ. But if God is not good, then none of this really matters. Like, if God's not good, then we can't believe what Jesus said about him. We can't believe what the scriptures say about him. If God's not good, if he's not faithful, if we can't trust him, then everything that we read in the Bible doesn't really matter. So we have to have the perspective that God is good and that God is faithful and that this is God's nature no matter what if we're going to believe. Otherwise, we get to pick and choose what is true in Scripture and what's not true. So, I'm going to move forward, pretending that I've done a good job of establishing the fact that God is good. <clears throat> if you uh, don't believe that or still have a problem with it, Jordan is more than willing to talk to you about it all week as much as you want. <clears throat> so go ahead and, and let him know that. So when I think about resurrection life, there's a lot of different things that I think about. Like I've said before, that, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, that we have a unique opportunity to live in communion with him on a daily basis. Like the God, that, that God who through his words created something literally from nothing. 
Proverbs 3.19 says, By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. Like, God didn't just say, let there be light, and then step back and be like, dang, light's pretty cool. He didn't create the water and be like, oh my goodness, look what that does. Like, Jesus, do you see what this water's doing? Like, that's pretty cool. Like, by wisdom and understanding, he created these things. He's aware of how things work. He, he made things very intentionally. All these scientific discoveries that we have, God's not like sitting back like, oh my goodness, is that how that works? Like, he knows it all. He made it all by wisdom and by understanding. He created these things and we get to have relationship with that God. I think about the fact that, that we get to live a life that's, that we're called to be free from sin. That Jesus' death on the cross paved the way for us to live where sin does not have power us. Where through Jesus' blood, we are overcomers. That every day, I get to encounter more of his mercy through my weaknesses. Because my greatest victories are not possible without him. I think about the fact that we are empowered to live a life of power that the gifts of the Spirit are alive and active, that we are literally called on a daily basis to see blind eyes open, that we are called on a daily basis to see deaf ears hearing, to see the lame walk, to see the sick healed, to see the dead raised. This isn't like a calling for the bush in Africa. This is a calling for our everyday lives to see these things happening. God, the God, the creator of the universe, wants us to bring his kingdom to this earth. There's so many things that I can think about when I think about resurrection life. <clears throat> and honestly, a few of these things I started, started using a few of these things to like prepare for this week. And then, as usually happens about three days ago, God was like, no, 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 this is, this is what I want you to talk about. <clears throat> so what I'm going to talk about is community. Strangely enough, what Jordan was talking about a few minutes ago. <clears throat> so Genesis 2.18 then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So all of Genesis 1 and 2 is God creating things and saying that they are good. He created the earth and it was. He created the water, separated the land from the sea and it was. He created all the birds, he created all the, the animals and he created man and it was good. And man was very good. So we get to this point in Genesis 2 where God looks at Adam being alone and he looks at that and he says, this is not good. Everything else was good. This is the first time God said, this is not good. So there's something going on here. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. The next chapter, Genesis 3, is the fall of man. I assume a lot of people know the story. Satan comes into the garden. He tempts Eve with the honey crisp apple. She says, yes, eats it, gives it to Adam. He also takes a bite. Then God comes down in the garden and is walking there. Like they, they hear his footsteps in the garden and so they run and hide. So God is in some physical form. Not sure what this physical form is, but he is in a physical form where he is walking through the garden to meet with Adam and Eve. And every time that I've read this story, I've thought, that is so cool. Like God is there in the garden. Like he created them for relationship, to be with him, to be <clears throat> to be like him with his creation. Like he created them so that he could come down and do that. And I've always thought that's so cool that, that like the manifest, like God in the flesh is actually walking with them. And then whenever I was thinking about it in the sense of community, it hit me. <clears throat> God said it's not good for man to be alone. Yet God was there walking with Adam and Eve each day. So let's take take Eve out of the out of the picture. Like <clears throat> 
God probably would have still been there walking with Adam every single day. It's not like God put Eve there and then is like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with my creation. Like, he wanted to be with them no matter what. But for some reason, God said, me coming down is not enough to fulfill them. They need something else. It's not good for man to be alone. <clears throat> and so, I'm not saying that God can't fill this void, but I am saying that there is something in our lives that God does not fill because it's supposed to be filled by our relationship with others. So let me, let me clarify this because I don't want you to hear me saying we don't need God because that is 100% wrong. We, <clears throat> you're 100% wrong. <laughs> we need to find our identity in God. We need to find our hope in God. We need to find love in God. We need to find joy in God. Anything else that we put our identity in, our hope and our joy in, is fleeting. Like, it's not reliable. It's going to let you down at some point. So we have to put all of those things in God. <clears throat> but there is something that is in us that not only longs for and desires close relationships, but there's a piece of our heart that's not filled by God. It's filled by others. And I'm not saying that God is not capable of filling that void because God is. Like, God is the comforter of the lonely. He is there for them. But he puts something in us that he chooses not to fill because he wants us to be in community with others because it's not good for us to be alone. <clears throat> so how does this, how does resurrection life flow with community? Galatians 6, 1 through 2. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You who are spiritual should restore him. Now, whenever I read this, I think of like a super spiritual person. Like I think of somebody who's who sinned and this this priest walking in in his priestly garb, probably with his nose in the air, thinking, I'm going to restore this person because I'm more spiritual than them and I'm better than them. But that's not what this scripture says. <clears throat> I read four different commentaries on this, and every single one said the same thing. When it says a spiritual person, it is talking about a person who has the Holy Spirit in them. This isn't a calling for a pastor. This isn't a calling for a priest. This is a calling for the body that any person who has the Holy Spirit in them is called to restore this person. <clears throat> it's not some high calling for only the most spiritual. It's a calling for all believers to come to the aid of anybody that we are walking with who is going through a difficult time. The scripture says, you who are spiritual, not only the most spiritual. It's Paul commissioning every single believer to support those around them. Then he continues, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Once again, he's saying the same thing, like bear one another's burdens. That's what he's saying the first and second time. But this time he says, so that you fulfill the law of Christ. So that got me thinking, what is the law of Christ? In Matthew 22, 36 through 40, a teacher comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? <clears throat> Jesus starts quoting something that would be very, very familiar to this time. It's called the Shema. And it's, it's part of the, the long decree that Moses gave to the Israelites. And the, the, the Shema in Deuteronomy, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I commit to you today 
shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. <clears throat> so if this guy's a teacher of the law, he's super familiar with the Shema. I mean, they, he's probably prayed this hundreds if not more times in his life um, the Pharisees back in the day, they used to actually take this and they would write it out on a tiny little scroll and they would put it on a headband on their forehead so that everybody could see that they were super spiritual. People usually put this on their, the doorpost of their house, again, in a little scroll. So any Jew at this time, especially teachers of the law, would be super familiar with this. So Jesus pulls a part of this out and he replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now Jesus could have stopped there very easily. <clears throat> And I would probably bet that the person who's asking this question kind of wished that he stopped there. Like, how many people ask somebody a question and then you get like a really long answer and you're like, either A, I'm still waiting on the answer to the question that I asked you, so please just tell me that. Or two, you've already given me this answer, I'm done with this conversation, let me move on. <clears throat> Jesus could have stopped with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But there was something else there. The man asked for the greatest commandment, but Jesus decided there is something more important that I need to keep going. And so he continues, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So recognizing the way that Jesus does things, my assumption is that this guy probably did not love others well. Because we see this throughout Scripture. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Go sell all your possessions. A man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. My, 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 my family is dead, like I need to go bury them first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, come and follow me. Like Jesus is very good at, at knowing your heart is attached to this and not to me. And so I need you to let go of this so that you can attach your heart to me. And I have a feeling that Jesus was kind of doing this with this guy here. So I think that this guy heard the first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He's like, oh man, I got that. Like he's a teacher of the law. He probably goes to... Goes to temple five days a week. He's probably thinking, oh, I tithe more than this person. Oh, my beard's longer than this person. Like, I'm more spiritual than everybody here. <clears throat> and then Jesus drops the hammer with the second one, and I can just feel this guy's heart going, dang it. That's so much harder. <clears throat> I'm not good at that. <clears throat> so this is the law that we are fulfilling in Galatians 6 when we're bearing one another's burdens is to love your neighbor as yourself. So go back to Galatians 6, where we're told two different times to support those and be there for, the, for one another. And in doing so, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. This isn't some crazy commandment. It's not something super radical. It's not something hard. It's not something that's only for the most spiritual. Like any single person in this room is capable of loving your neighbor. It's, it's like the simplest command ever. Just love the person next to you. It's really not that hard. It doesn't take any special credentials to be able to love your neighbor. Everybody here has the ability to bear other people's burdens and to love on them. It's as simple as learning what's going on in somebody's life and walking with them through it, supporting them. It's really not that difficult to do. <clears throat> so why does this matter? <clears throat> you can ask why a hundred times and just keep going down a rabbit hole. So this is probably the last time I'm asking why. <clears throat> why does it matter that we bear one another's burdens? Whenever me and Danny moved into our house, the people there who lived there before us were like plant fanatics. It is ridiculous. If you went into the backyard, and we have a, a small backyard to begin with, but literally the entire fence, you could not see the fence. It was all bushes and trees. Our house 
in the backyard. Bushes all along. Like literally, you could not see the bottom of anything because there were so many bushes and trees there. In the corner, there was, I think, two or three trees, like four bushes, plants in front of that. It went like five rows deep of these different plants that these people had decided to plant. I think they didn't like to mow their grass, and so they just decided to plant stuff everywhere so they wouldn't ever have to deal with that. <clears throat> so one of the first things that I wanted to do, because I love yards, I love grass, like I wanted as much room as possible, contrary to what these people wanted, I think. And so <clears throat> I go out there. There's a few trees out there, and I'm like, you know, I got an axe. I think I'll go out there and <clears throat> try to cut this thing down. So I take my handy axe out there that I believe was my dad's axe, and I actually don't know how I have it or if I'm still supposed to have it, but it is probably from when he first got married, which is almost 40 years ago now. It's got the same wooden handle that's probably going to splinter within the next few uses. It's got a nail right below the axe head to keep the axe head from sliding down, and then it's got a, a little shim in the top that splits the wood apart to keep the axe head from coming off the top. So if you ever see me using an axe, my suggestion would be to stand back because I have no clue when that thing's actually going to fly off. So I get out there, and I'm going to chop down this tree. And so I'm all ready. I got my axe, and I swing it as hard as I can. I've used axes before. Like, I know how to do this. I swing it as hard as I can, and this thing just, like, bounces off of the tree. And it hurts. Like, my hands are, like, reverberating from this, from this axe that's just bouncing off this tree. And I look at it, and, like, a tiny little piece came out. You know, I think I dented the tree at this point. So I try it again, I'm like I know how to use an axe, and I do it again, exact same thing. My hands are like burning, my arms hurt. I'm like, what is going on? And so I look at the, the top of the axe, and I start feeling it with my thumb, and I'm pretty sure the butter knives in our drawer are sharper than this thing was. Like I might as well have been hitting this tree with a hammer. So I take it <clears throat> to my garage, got a handy dandy little Dremel, start, start going at it with the Dremel. You know, first you start... <clears throat> a Dremel's a little tool. It's got a lot of different attachments, so it's got a sharpener on there, like a, a stone. <clears throat> it's got a grinding stone on there. Let me say that. <clears throat> so I start, start sharpening this blade, and first you start seeing all of the dirt that's coming off, like all of the, the years and years and years of never being clean, never being dealt with coming off. And then you get to the metal, and you start, you start taking off some of that metal. It turns nice and shiny, and finally you get to where you start carving a point on both sides. So I go back out after, I, after I've done this and I start chopping down the tree. First time, I mean, it goes like an inch into the tree. Like, beautiful. Exactly like I was planning. Do another time, you know, you go at a different angle and this huge piece of, of tree comes out and I'm like, okay, I'm in business now. <clears throat> so I could have stood there and I could have chopped at this tree with my dull axe. And it would have come down eventually, probably. Might have been 100 swings. It might have been 1,000 swings. It might have been 10,000 swings. But it probably would have come down. It would have taken longer, it would have been much harder, and it would have been much more painful if my axe had not been sharp. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There's something powerful about community and living life together that sharpens us to be able to face a storm with more confidence and more preparation. We can spend our whole lives trying to push through our own struggles on our own, but it's going to take longer, it's going to be harder, and it's probably going to be a lot more painful if we do that. But when we do community right, we sharpen each other so that when trials or temptations come, we are better equipped to stand against them. Community is a large part of what allows us to thrive in difficult circumstances. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. 
a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Think back to any difficult situation in your life. <clears throat> like literally go ahead and think back to a situation. I'm going to give you a few seconds. <clears throat> and think about what got you through that situation. Now, there are going to be situations where literally it was God that got you through that, like, like just God. And for any situation, a lot of people will still think, like even if there are other people there, they'll think, Jesus, God got me through that, which is true. Like, like we said, God is good. So if you get through a difficult situation, then we can say that was God because God is good. But I would bet that whenever you think about what got you through that situation, it's probably going to be a person. It's probably going to be a family member. It's probably going to be a friend. It's going to be somebody who was there in the midst of the darkness, somebody who was there to love and support you, somebody who was there to be a shoulder to cry on, or somebody who was there just to be an ear to listen to what was going on, somebody who was there to call out the lies in your life and the things that are going on is, this is not truth, this does not stand to what God said you were created to be and how you were created to be. I would also bet that most of these people were around before the difficulties happened because majority of the time, people don't just show up when things get difficult. It's actually the opposite. Usually people run whenever things get difficult. <clears throat> and so these people who helped you through this time, they were probably there before things got difficult, and our community shows their face whenever things get difficult. That's when people show their true friendship. That's when people show their true care and love. That's when people show that they can bear your burdens. The sharpening that it talks about in Proverbs is central to our walk as Christians. We don't become more like Christ by sitting around and doing nothing. We could meditate for 20 hours a day, and we would not become more like Christ because Christ did not meditate for 20 hours a day. Like Christ was living life with people. He was challenging people, and he was being challenged by people. And if you don't think he was being challenged by people, he had uh, like impulsive Peter on his team. He had Judas the thief on his team. He had Doubting Thomas on his team. Like, all these people who are, like, just as flawed as any of us. I mean, Jesus is walking with them, being perfect his whole life, and having to deal with all these other imperfections of the people around him. He was challenged on a daily basis. When we choose to live life with those around us in a way where we are vulnerable with the struggles that, we are, that are going on in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our spiritual walk, in our actions, in our marriages then we can be challenged. Then we can be sharpened for the times ahead. I believe that all people have the desire to be known by others, that inside each and every one of us is a desire to be known and to be known well by others. I mean, this is like, this is part of the, the central gospel. Like, Jesus came down so that we could have relationship with God. Like, God wanted to be known by us. He wanted us to know him. And so I think that it makes sense that that would be ingrained in all of us, that we have a desire to be known by those around us. And not just be known like on a surface level, but actually be known deeply. That people know like what affects you, what, what hurts you, what blesses you. Our community should be a place where you become known on a deeper level, where you have people walking beside you daily, weekly basis who can bear your burdens and whose burdens you can bear too. Because this is not a, a one-way street. We're not called to just share others' burdens just as we, sorry, we are called to share others' burdens just as they are called to share ours. But this sharpening only comes when we are willing 
to be sharpened. It takes a little effort. It takes a little vulnerability, as Jordan loves to say. <clears throat> In order to be sharpened, there has to be refining. There has to be friction. We have to be honest and we have to be willing to get offended. Sharpening does not happen. <clears throat> Sharpening doesn't happen by cotton. Sharpening happens by friction. Cotton just makes things nice and shiny. Friction is what actually causes something to get sharper and to get better, not just look pretty. Having good friendships is important. We have to have people that we can go and talk to. There has to be the level of somebody getting to know you on the surface, but that can't stop there. It has to be getting to know you deeper and going to the deep things, the things that really make you tick and make you move. We have to be willing to invite others into our deep, dark places in order for us to grow. Is community perfect? Nope, not by any means. But that's why we need it, because we are working towards perfection. And there is no way for us to get there without the friction that comes through community and through walking together. That is all that I have. <coughs> <coughs> That was good, man. I'm going to critique you a little bit after service, just so you'll just so you'll get better. You need friction. Okay. I'll deliver all my complaints to Jordan. Um, no, that was that was awesome. Um, hey, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to get ready to take communion. So we'll go ahead and just uh, come up and receive the elements, and then we'll go back to our seats and take together. I want to do something a little different just to go along with what Josh shared. Uh, why don't we just have everybody just get with maybe three or four people right around you. And I'm actually just going to release you guys to take communion when you're ready. But just uh, just get with three or four people around you. And uh, if anyone just has something to share about um, just like the way that God's presence uh, leads us to love, then sh you can share something really quick with your group. Um, and then you guys just take communion as a group together. <clears throat> 